Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, Brent. How's everybody doing today? Happy, uh, happy Palm Sunday to everybody. Uh, what we're going through today in Revelation 21 is really appropriate for celebrating Palm Sunday. Of course, we celebrate Palm Sunday remembering um, the Sunday when Jesus, or the day when Jesus rode in to the city of Jerusalem. And as he was riding in, people were waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna, which means King David, so to speak, King David, son of David, save us. Um, and as they, were, as they were proclaiming this, they were a foreshadow- this was a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory that would come later that week through the cross and his resurrection. And so the palm branches, they represent uh, victory, they represent life. And what we're going to be talking about today from Revelation 21 is a foreshadowing of what's to come. In other words, we're going to be talking about heaven today. We're going to be talking about what it looks like, what the Bible describes as the new heaven and the new earth, what we would call the eternal state or eternity. And we're going to be reading through that here uh, this morning. And so from this chapter, we're going to get probably the most descriptive place in all of the Bible about what heaven is, is going to look like. Uh, we don't have every answer provided for us necessarily, uh, but we get the big picture, and this is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, the big question of what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of heaven? What is heaven going to be like? And why is it that heaven is, is full of so much hope? You know, we, or the idea of heaven is full of so much hope. Why is our hope, why is the hope of our faith kind of centered on this idea? And you know, uh, we've talked about repeatedly, right, the book of Revelation being a book of hope. And this is really why this book is known as a book of hope, because there are two things probably most people know about the book of Revelation. One is that it's full of all these judgment scenes, and then two is that it describes eternity for us. And so we're getting to that place where we've moved all the way through the story of the book of Revelation. We've gone through kind of all these conflict, all this conflict stuff, and like any good story, there is conflict in it, and there is struggle. We've gone through all these judgment scenes, and now we're arriving at the resolution, this is the end of the story. This is where we get to a place of understanding why this book is so uh, hopeful. So if you're looking for hope today, if you're looking for hope this morning, and really who isn't looking for hope right now in the world that we're living in, this is going to be a great encouragement hopefully for you uh, today. And one of the things that we're going to see is that, of course, this is not just about what's going to happen one day in the future, but how we define hope is, po- is so powerful in terms of the way that we live now and the way that we understand what it means to respond to the hope that we have, because no matter who we are and no matter what we believe, all of us live with some kind of hope in mind, which typically comes from some idea about what we believe about the future. Sometimes that's just kind of the immediate future, you know, maybe a week or a month into the future, we're believing something and hoping that something might happen, so we're kind of behaving in a certain way or responding in a, or preparing in a certain way. Sometimes it has to do with bigger things, like what we're going to talk about today, which is the ultimate hope of eternity. How does that influence and impact how we live right now? For instance, let's say someone was looking for, was hoping for a promotion at work, right? Uh, they're hoping for a promotion at some point, and so as a result, it, 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 it kind of changes the way they might react in their daily life. They might realize that they need to work harder or dedicate more focus on their job in order to achieve that promotion. How about going on a diet and exercise plan, right? Diet and exercise plans are always built on hope, right? I don't think any of us, I don't think uh, any of us uh, necessarily think to ourselves, let's eat a bunch of kale because it tastes good, Right? And please don't send me an email and tell me about how kale tastes good and all that stuff. You're just, it, it, <laughs> you're wasting your time on that one. Uh, did you know, for instance, that, you know, uh, it, up until 2013, the biggest purchaser of kale was Pizza Hut? I saw that this past week, speaking of kale. Uh, 
and, and the reason that they bought it was because they used it to decorate their salad bar. Right? It was used as a decoration. And so, uh, so, yeah, so we eat kale not because it tastes good, but because we realize that as a part of a diet and exercise plan, it may bring healthy results. There's, you know, health benefits associated with those kinds of things, apparently, right? Uh, we don't get up, you know, at, you know, an hour early in the morning to run three miles because it's pleasant or it's fun necessarily all the time. We do it out of the hope of what might come on the other end. A healthier lifestyle, maybe losing a little bit of weight, or maybe just feeling a little bit better after exercising and eating right. But whatever, it is, whatever the point may be, uh, whatever it may be, the point is that although we may, we may not think about it this way, the hope of what will come guides all kinds of decisions in the way that we live right now. The thing is about, for the most part, the most of us rarely think about the larger question of how does the hope of eternity impact my life today? We go back again to the job promotion example. Let's say there's a guy named Jack who wants a promotion at work over the next two to three years. But he knows in order to get that promotion, he's going to have to work a little bit more at work. He's going to have to put in more work at the office, maybe more work at the job site. Uh, Let's say 10 hours a week would do it for, for Jack. Right? And so Jack realizes, I work five days a week, I've got to add two more hours to my daily schedule. Now that decision, out of a hope of getting a promotion, impacts his daily lives in some profound ways. Because Jack has a wife and three kids at home. And if he works two hours later into the day, it might prevent him from, atten- from being a part of his family dinners each night. If he decides to work those hours on the weekend, like on a Saturday, it might impact his availability to go to sporting events, maybe go to a daughter's soccer game, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, that hope of gaining a promotion has changed his everyday life, possibly even changed some of the relationships with his wife and with his children. Now, if Jack had a different hope, let's say being more connected with his wife and kids, he would likely have to pass on the extra hours at work so that he could be home, have dinner with his kids, and make it to his daughter's soccer games on the weekend. Now, you might say that one hope would be better than the other hope, or one result would be better than the other result, But the reality is the decision to change from one hope to another then filters down to change all kinds of other things. It changes Jack's goals. It changes how he spends his time. It changes who he spends his time with, right? People at work versus, or clients versus his family. And then what he actually ends up doing with his daily schedule. It's all built on an idea of what we hope in. It impacts our daily life. And as important as a decision about job and family might be, try to imagine how much more important what you believe about the hope of eternity influences, how it influences your daily life. Again, that's what we're going to be talking about today. What does eternity look like? What hope is there? And why does that matter to us right now and today? And to, and to do that, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 21 to look at what the Bible has to say about heaven Again, what is called the eternal state. We're going to see it called as the new heaven and the new earth. I'm going to refer to it as the new creation. Heaven, new heaven, new earth, new creation, all of it's kind of intertwined. They all kind of mean the same things. They're a little bit interchangeable in this way. So we refer to it to different ways. But as we get to this place, what we're getting to is essentially the happy ending of Scripture. We're getting to the, not only the last two books of uh, the book of Revelation, but we're getting to the last, or the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, but we're getting to the last two chapters of the entire Bible. And what the Bible provides us with is the ultimate of happy endings. And the best part about this is that this happy ending lasts forever. So let's read from Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 8 to begin with. Uh, This chapter, by the way, is the longest 
chapter verse count, verse count wise in the entire book of Revelation. So we're going to break it up into bite-sized pieces. And it actually breaks down into two scenes anyway, kind of neatly that way. So we'll look at one scene and then we'll look at the second scene uh, after we talk about this first one. So Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 8 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for, the wor- for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, as you might be able to tell already, this chapter is not necessarily about just giving all the details of what daily life in heaven will be like, although we would talk about a little bit, a little bit about that by making connections to this. But this chapter is really about why it is that heaven is so important and what it is exactly that God is doing through this. And in order to see that, we have to see the one important, we have to really focus on this one important statement. It happens in verse 5. I think it's really the hinge point of this entire scene. It's also really, you could argue, the hinge point of the entire biblical story. And it's in verse 5, and it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That statement from Jesus, by the way, I am making all things new, summarizes, it could be really the thesis or the moral of the biblical story, if you will. This is all about how Jesus is ultimately making all things new, and this scene is certainly about that. So let's take a deeper look at this, kind of unpack it a little bit. One thing we want to notice is, let's first ask this question, what does Jesus mean by new, by that word new? What's important to know is that in, in the Greek language, there are actually two words that can be used to translate into the word new. There is the word uh, uh, neos, and then there is the word kainos. Neos is a word that means kind of new in condition or maybe like new in time. So if you were, for example, to go out to one of the car dealerships out on Frank Lloyd Wright, and you were to walk onto the lot, one thing you would see is that there are kind of two divisions of cars, more or less, in dealerships. There's the new cars, right, the cars that are new in condition, and then there are the used or pre-owned cars, right, and, and they refer to them as used or pre-owned. That's, neo, that's neos, by the way. That's new in condition. Now, if the, the, word, the word kainos, which is actually the word that is used here, is refers to something that is new in kind. It is different, in other words, from the old. It is something that is different or that is, that is in contrast to what has come before. So, again, if you were to go to that car dealership and you were to buy a car and you were to drive it home, and let's say as you're driving up into your, uh, into your driveway, your neighbor comes up to you and says, hey, I like your new car. Right? He might be referring to the condition of the car, but more likely what he's referring to is you have a new car that's different than the car that you were driving, and I like this new car that you've driven up in. Right? 
And it could be a pre-owned car, it could be a used car, it doesn't necessarily refer to the condition. Now as we look at the new creation, of course, as the new creation, as we see this vision of John seeing this new city coming down, it is new in condition. But what Jesus is pointing out here is I'm doing something new and something different. The point is that newness means different. It's something different than what we are used to. It's something different than what we're accustomed to seeing and feeling and experiencing in our current realities. You see that highlighted here when Jesus says, the former things have passed away. And what this essentially does for us is set up a contrast between the old and the new that carries us all the way through this chapter and even on into the next. The point is that God has done something new. He's done something different. The old things have gone away to make way for what is new. And that's where our hope rests. So as we read this chapter and we see all the references to new, like new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all things new, what we're meant to see is that what, we're, what, what our hope is in is something that replaces all the things that are passing away. So what is it exactly that is going to be made new then? Well, that connects us to the corresponding part of the statement, the inseparable part of the statement where Jesus says, I'm making all things new. It's all things that are going to be made new. All things means all, all things. And it points to the totality of what Jesus is doing. Not only are things different, but all things are being made different. There's not a thing that's not going to be touched by the redemptive hand of God in a way in which he brings it into the new creation. Imagine for a moment what that would mean. Everything in the created world being made new in kind. Being made as a new creation for eternity. I say imagine, right, because that's something, uh, deliberately, because that's something that we really can't get fully get our heads around. But we are given some descriptions here to help our imagination. And the first thing that we're told is that the new creation that we will have is a literal new heaven and new earth, uh, which again is kind of an all-encompassing phrase for new creation. So I'll ask you this question. When you think about heaven, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What is heaven going to be like from your perspective? What do you imagine? What's the first picture that comes to mind? Oftentimes, and I think this is represented in popular culture often, when you think about heaven, it's about kind of being in the clouds, right? Maybe as a disembodied spirit and you've got a harp and maybe a halo on your head and you're just playing songs all day long to God sitting on a cloud. And as, as nice as that seems, as peaceful as that seems, we're talking about eternity here, right? <laughs> it doesn't exactly sound like the most exciting thing to do for eternity. And fortunately, what we get here is this picture of New creation being a new heaven and a new earth where, we will, where the scripture tells us that we'll actually have new physical resurrected bodies where we will live in this reality as people who have been crea- created body, soul, mind, and spirit completely by God in God's image and he's redeeming it all. Now there's all kinds of implications for that and we'll talk a little bit more as we get into the details of what this city looks like but the reality is that the first scene in heaven is a physical place where those who will be a part of it live in physical bodies for the life that God intended us to live. When we read in a place like 1 Corinthians 15, for example, Paul's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things he says is that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he's telling the Corinthian church, in other words, if you want to see what the resurrection looks like, if you want to see what new life looks like, new creation looks like, look at Jesus. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection implies a resurrected body, more than it is just the resurrected soul or spirit, a resurrected body, and that for 40 days, Jesus actually met with the disciples, he talked with them, he ate food with them, right? he hung out with them, he walked with them, he did all the things that a physical body does. And Paul says that's exactly the way that we're to expect our resurrection bodies to be as well. 
And we're told to look at this as a trusting in Jesus as the risen Savior who gives us eternal life, and that life incorporates all of this together. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul also says this, verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So imagine that for a moment. The eternal state is going to be a physical place where we live in a resurrected body for eternity. Now, I don't know exactly what that body's going to look like. I don't know if it, you know exactly what it's going to be capable of, but I will tell you this. I believe that there are things like sights and smells and tastes and experiences that we'll be able to experience for the first time to the fullest extent that we haven't been able to experience here on earth. Even the best moments in life are kind of you know, limited by the brokenness of maybe our age or our sickness or just the fact that this world is not exactly the way that it's supposed to be. When the physical new heavens and new earth come, we'll be able to experience those things in the way that God intended them to be experienced. It's also a place that we're told where there will be no pain or disease or death or injustice or evil or sin. Verse 4 says there will be nothing in creation that causes death or tears or mourning or pain anymore. And the reason for that is that the former things have passed away. And what are all the former things? All the former things are all the broken things, all the sinful things, all the evil things, all the things that cause chaos and injustice and brokenness in the world. And of course, if we know, if we've been following the story of Revelation at this point, we know all those things have already been judged to prepare us then for the new creation. They've been burned away and they've been taken away so that God can bring in his perfect new creation. Along with Revelation 21, the rest of the Bible consistently tells us that new creation will be full of life and peace. And this is one of the big ideas in the Bible, but this idea of peace is, uh, is something that has to do with fullness of the way that God intended everything to be. You know, when we typically, when we typically use the word peace in modern English, we talk about things like, you know, the absence of war. So we talk about the war in Ukraine. We're praying for peace in Ukraine, that there would be an absence of war, an absence of conflict there. We talk about a peaceful day. We're talking about something that's calm or a peaceful lake that we're sitting at, right? It's a calm lake that's in front of us. But the idea of shalom is so much fuller than that. The biblical idea of peace is everything in creation being the way that it was supposed to be, flourishing uh, and in harmony. It's about people being in harmony again and reconciled to their creator. It's about people being reconciled to one another across divisions that we so often see characterizing our world. It's about unbroken relationships between people, and it's about being brought back into full harmony, and it's about every person being flour flourishing in the areas, in every areas of our being, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, full of wholeness and health, the way that we were designed to live. So what's being presented here is heaven as a new creation, eternal, physical space where we'll enjoy everything to the fullest extent. So that describes a lot of what the new creation world will look like and the eternal state will look like. The next question is, who will be there? And this addresses, this passage addresses that in a couple of different ways. First of all, God tells us who will be there and then God tells us who won't be there. If you look at verses 2, 3, and 7, we're told who will be there. And in verse 8, we're told, we're given a description of who will not be there. 
So let's first start with who will be there. The people who are described as being there are a part of this holy city that is coming down from heaven, which is, called, which is referred to as the New Jerusalem. Again, we're going to get more detail about that city in the next section that we look at, the second half of chapter 21. But for now, let's focus on what we're told here. We're told, first of all, that this city is holy, which literally means that it is set apart. The city is also described as a bride being presented to God, or a bride being presented to Christ. And so you get this picture that not only is this city set apart, but it's set apart distinctly for God and for relationship and connection and love with God. And you get this picture, really, of this bride being presented to her husband, who is God, and and you get this picture of God then basically creating or preparing this dwelling place for him to be with his bride forever. And I don't know if this is exactly correct, but for whatever reason, the image of you know, a groom carrying his bride over the threshold into their new home after they've been married or after the honeymoon kind of pops up in my mind. Just this picture of God carrying his bride, so to speak, into eternity with him to spend, uh, to spend eternity with him. So what we get, though, is this picture then of the saints, of those who are in Christ, being adorned with this bridal garment as part of those who are dwelling with God for eternity. Those are the ones who will be be there, the ones who are adorned with these bridal linens, the ones that we've seen previously in the book of Revelation represent the salvation of Jesus. They're covered by the righteousness of Christ, they're covered by the salvation of Jesus, and they're prepared for the time with their groom, with their husband. After telling us who will be there, God also makes a point to tell us about those who will not be in the new creation. These are the people who are not God's people. They're not set apart for God. They're not a part of the bride. Um, And as we see this list as it's described in verse 8, we also see that these are things and characteristics of life that will not be in the new creation because they're a part of the things that break and corrupt creation even now. Murder, things like murdering, lying, immorality, sorcery, idolatry. Again, all things by this point that will have been judged and removed, but things that are not a part of the new creation. Now, here's an important point that's made here, though, and the distinction between these two types of people. The contrast that's present here in the book of Revelation shows us something to be really true about our relationship with God and who will be there and who will not be there. I want you to notice the way that each group of people are characterized, they're identified, and how they're described. The first group of people, those who are in Christ, those who are saved in Jesus, those who are covered by his righteousness, are described as people who are saints. They are, just, they are described as people, in other words, who are covered primarily by the linen garments. Right? And so that when God looks at them, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Those who are not covered by that linen are those who are identified by the things they do. They're identified as either murderers or liars or idolaters or sexual immorality, whatever it may be, right? That list is not meant to be exhaustive, by the way. It's meant to be representative of sin, essentially, right? And so there are two types of people who are laid out there before. The ones who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and the ones who are not. And the ones who are not stand, essentially, in their own deeds. And so we're either in the deeds or in the righteousness of Jesus or left to our own self-righteousness in that place, Revelation 19, 7 through 8, as we read a couple of weeks ago, describes what this looks like in more detail. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And here it is. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And how was it granted to her to wear this fine linen? It was granted to her by Jesus, the lamb who was slain on her behalf so that she might have salvation and be covered in his righteousness. 
For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It is accounted to them even as righteous because they have the fine linen on them. Notice the contrast between that and the only thing that stands, or the only thing that's different between those two groups of people, of course, is those who are wearing the bridal linens, the righteous deeds of Jesus versus those who are not. We made this point a couple weeks ago from Revelation 19. But God's people then are collectively seen as the bride with this fine linen that they wear. And so there are only two types of people according to the Bible, and both of those types of people are identified here in Revelation 21. They have different identities, and they have different destinies. And based upon who their identity is and how they're resting in, either they're self-righteous or they're Jesus-righteous. If they're self-righteous, they die according to their own sins, and they're judged in that way. If they are Jesus-righteous, they are also judged in that way and given new creation because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. The difference is, do I trust in Jesus' righteousness or do I trust in my own self-righteousness? And that's really the distinction here. And so this is about as personal as it can be in terms of how to apply something like this. As we're reading this, I think it's apparent that we're challenged to really ask ourselves, which person am I? Am I the self-righteous? Right? And the self-righteous is marked by someone who just basically says, I don't need a Savior. I don't need a Savior. Or am I in a place where I am Jesus-righteous, in knowing in faith that I need a Savior to cover me? I need the bridal linens to cover me. Which brings us to the most important part, really, probably of this whole scene. And it's that God is dwelling with his people. It's this description of God dwelling with his people for eternity. Really, this has been the hope of the biblical story from the very, very beginning. Ever since the fall happened, that God would dwell again with his people. We see it in Exodus, we see it in the incarnation of Jesus, and then we see it finally fulfilled in Revelation. This picture of God dwelling with us as his people. And here's something that we need to see about the heaven and the eternal state. That Jesus is the point of it all. Right? In, the, in, the next chat, in the next part of the chapter, John's going to talk about the new creation being lit up by the glory and the presence of God. That there's no need for a temple building, there's no need for a church building, because Jesus himself is the one who brings the glory and the presence of God to every piece of the new creation. That he is there, kind of tabernacling, tabernacling so to speak. He is the tabernacle, the temple, the one who is incarnate, uh, the one who is the son of God incarnate. And we talked about the glory of God being the character and the presence of God before, and in this case, we see it everywhere in the new creation. What this means is that you really, want, you, you really need to want to, to know Jesus and to see Jesus and to see his character and to want to be around God to actually, for heaven to actually make sense to you. Right? For heaven to actually have hope, you've actually got to love Jesus because there's going to be a lot of Jesus in the new creation. In fact, it's going to be everywhere, every corner of the earth. So the question we ask ourselves, do I love the character of Jesus? Do I love the glory of God? John Piper um, puts this really well. I've quoted this before, but I think it's appropriate to quote it again. He says this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters, which are all true about heaven, by the way. We see this here. But if you had all of that stuff and Jesus were not there, could you be satisfied with heaven? It's a central question of this. Because this is really the point of heaven. So that God can dwell with his people and his people can enjoy God's presence and character. 
And simply put, I think we know that there are people in our world who simply, that would not be their idea of heaven. That would not be how they want to spend their eternity. We were talking about this as a staff this past week, in fact, and we were thinking to ourselves, like for those of us who know Jesus, it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't make sense to like think to ourselves, why would you not want this? But there are people who do not want this and who would not want this, and you probably know some of those folks. What happens here, though, is in, in the end, right, they would rather live in a world without that. And what happens here in judgment is that they show this in their life and God honors their decision in judgment to allow them to live out eternity without the presence of God, without the blessing of God, without the grace of God for eternity. And what we see happen there is then they live in an eternal reality without God's presence, with just sin and evil and corruption and brokenness and suffering everywhere without check and without any kind of grace or mercy of God covering it at all. So now that we've talked about this big picture of the new heaven and the new earth, let's talk about the description here a little bit more of the city as we continue in John's vision in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the name of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three, uh, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, the fourth uh, emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were, the twelve, were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They bring it into the glory and the honor, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right, so there's a lot of detail here, and without going into too much detail about the measurements and what each precious stone might mean, I can't even pronounce those correctly, so we won't even go there. 
Uh, but typically, really, probably those precious stones are, are, are representative, really, of the stones that were on Aaron's breastplate as the high priest in Israel. There's all kinds of ways that we could go with that. But we're not going to talk a ton about that. We're going to focus instead on uh, kind of reinforcing these points that we've talked about earlier, which is why, what is this presenting to us, and why, what does this symbolism have to say to us about what this place is all about? At first, I think clearly reinforce, reinforce, reinforcing this point again is that the new creation will be a physical place, right? John sees a city literally coming out of heaven, and then it's measured, and there are physical landmarks that he's able to identify with, right? In other words, he says there are gates, there are walls, there are foundations. Those foundations, those walls, those gates are measured, and so this implies that this is a real physical place that is coming down from heaven, at the same time, I think it's important to see that not only are these numbers out there, and I don't think the numbers are made for us to necessarily number crunch and imagine what this, like, the dimensions might look like necessarily as a blueprint, but what we see is that these numbers are given to us as representatives of what this city will be like. In other words, the number 12 shows up over and over again. And we know how important the number 12 is in the book of the Bible, right? There, it's even mentioned here in Revelation 21, but we have 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles in the New Testament. There are 24 elders before the throne in the book of Revelation, which is a multiplier of 12, 144,000 who are gathered before the throne in heaven, right? Another multiplier of 12. As we see this, 12 represents a few things in Scripture. It represents the fullness of God's people. It represents the representatives or the administration or the rule or the reign of God's kingdom. It represents the fullness of God's promises and plans being accomplished. So that as we see 12 show up over and over again, what's being told to us is that this is the city where God's reign and God's administration, God's kingdom will rule in its fullness. This is the place that God's promises will be fulfilled completely from the very beginning. And this is the place where the fullness of God's people will dwell for eternity with him. Right? You see there are 12 gates having the 12 tribes of Israel, having the 12 tribes of Israel on them. 12 foundations of the apostles. Um, all these numbers that are listed here, not only 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits, and 12 precious stones. And the repetition of 12 is telling us over and over again about the nature, about the promise of what this city will be all about. And speaking of promises that God has made, the fact that it's described as a city and the city of New Jerusalem is important, and here's why. Let's start all the way back to the creation story real quick and go forward. We know that in the creation story, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and he tells them to do one thing. He tells them to keep and to work the creation that he's given to them. In other words, to care for the creation, but also to produce from what God has given them by being creative and produce new technologies and kind of produce new, new kinds of things. In other words, they were told to build communities, and they were told ultimately to build a city, right? And that's why the Bible starts with a garden and ends with a city, because the picture of this is that people are working and creating the creation so that they begin to invent and create just like uh, God would, as people who are created in the image of God. Now, the idea is that with each city that, that, that is built, right, the generations that follow would gather and they would enjoy human flourishing and they would enjoy community. And then at the center of all of it would be a celebration of the God who has created them. And as they act towards, as they act like God, so to speak, as they act out of the image of God, they represent who God is to one another as they, uh, as they use the creation to do that. That was the idea that was behind all of this. Now, as we know, uh, the first, Adam and Eve fell 
uh, in the garden by rebelling against God's authority. And so by the time we get to the first city, the first significant city in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, it's a city that is actually characterized by all the things it's not supposed to be. Rebellion against God's authority. It's called the city of Babel. And if you're familiar with that story, you know that the technology was actually used to build a tower so that they could try to overthrow God and become their own authority. God confuses their language, scatters them all over the earth. And since that time, the pictures of cities, especially the city from Babel that then becomes Babylon all the way into Revelation, becomes an archetype for chaos and disorder and really rebellion towards God. And so when we get to the New Jerusalem, that's why we have this city that kind of is produced here, the city that's created here that we see coming down from heaven. It is designed to be the contrast of everything that Babylon has been throughout history. And by the way, Babylon, as we've seen through Revelation, represents more than just like one city in the ancient world. It represents more than just Rome at the time. It represents really all of the failings of humanity and all of the rebellion of humanity throughout history. And so in this way, the city of Jerusalem is contra- of New Jerusalem is contrasted with Babylon. Again, where Babylon is a city of chaos and brokenness and violence and injustice, New Jerusalem is a city of shalom peace, with wholeness and justice and righteousness everywhere. Where Babylon is a city of greed and a city of the abuse of power, a city of, of death, New Jerusalem is a city of provision without greediness, and it's a city built on loving sacrifice that provides eternal life. Where in Babylon, idols are worshipped in place of God, in the New Jerusalem, the glory of God is everywhere and God dwells with his people in the new creation. And where Babylon is temporary and judged and destroyed, the New Jerusalem is eternal. We could go on and on with the contrasts that are present here, but the idea that God is showing us is that, look, what has been designed from the beginning, what I have planned from the beginning is being fulfilled in this place. This is what you were created for. This is what you were designed for, and you'll see flourishing in this place for eternity. And the New Jerusalem is the city that God promised would bring all of that back. It's a place where nothing unclean and nothing broken will enter to corrupt it, and it's a place where all evil and sin has been judged once and for all. And the fact that it's a city, the fact that it's called New Jerusalem, also fulfills God's promises in places like Isaiah 62, Ezekiel, especially in chapters 40 through 48. Places in Scripture where God promised that he would bring back a city like Jerusalem, but a city that was greater than Jerusalem, even in all its glory and in its height on the earth. And John says, and, and, and as John sees this city, It appears as a city, but it's more than just its measurements. It's a representation of a completely new creation where God will finally dwell with his people and every good hope that we have ever wanted, that we have ever longed for, will be fulfilled. So as we end this morning, I think I want to, there's a lot here to kind of digest and to think about what this could possibly be, right? Your mind might be spinning in some ways. Um, maybe you're imagining, okay, what does this look like? I, I could recommend a good resource, by the way. I know we didn't cover, like, what does a daily life in heaven look like? It really wasn't the purpose of, uh, uh, I don't think, necessarily of this chapter or this message. But if you're interested in that kind of thing, I could recommend a resource. It's called Heaven, a book Heaven called, uh, or by Randy Alcorn. And um, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great book, 500 pages just on, like, answering all those questions about what heaven might be like from Scripture. So you can take a look at that. But in the end, right, this is a bigger picture of asking the question, right, what is new creation all about and why is it that it gives us hope even for today? So I want to close with three questions for you to think about as we bring all these points together. The first is this. 
What is your hope? How would you classify and define hope for yourself in your life right now? We talked about at the beginning of this message, we all place our hope in something or maybe a series of somethings, and whatever we hope in is typically what we live out in our daily lives. And so if you're kind of fuzzy on that, like, I'm not really sure, I don't ever phrase it like that, I don't really think about, okay, what is it that I'm hoping in? You can actually reverse engineer this in your life. Just simply look at your life and ask, what do I spend most of my time and my attention on? What do I spend most of my limited resources on? Things like time, money, energy. What makes me ultimately happy? If you can answer those questions, you can get kind of close to this idea of what is it that I'm ultimately hoping in. We talked about the quote regarding heaven being about fully about Jesus. Does that sound appealing to you? I mean, be honest, right? How about the idea of the character of God being everywhere? Is that appealing to you? Is that exciting to you? Do you want to live in a reality like that? Where is your hope? Secondly, where is your home? Related to what we just said about God being everywhere, when you read a description like this, does this does this sound like everything you would want your eternal home to be all about? Does it feel like home to you? A place full of God's peace and righteousness and holiness where no evil things are in that place. Does that feel like a home that you would want to be a part of? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that when we come to faith in Jesus, we are made new creations. What this is telling us is that Jesus by his Spirit has prepared us as new creations for the new creation that we are going to live in. So that as Christians, we begin to realize that the world that we live in is not our home. This world that we look at right now that's full of brokenness and that's full of, uh, 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 of immorality and that's run by Babylon, so to speak, in many cases, we look at and realize that this is not our home. We actually live as exiles in this place because we're awaiting our real home to come. If you're a new creation in Christ, you long for the new creation that is coming because that's ultimately your home. So does this look like and feel like your home? And third, who is your Savior and King? And this is the bottom line question. It's a question that divides the two groups of people that we see mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. It's the people of the Lamb who trust in Jesus as their Savior, again, who are covered by the linen of the salvation and the righteousness of Jesus versus those who are not, who either decide to say, I don't need a Savior, or I can be my own Savior. This is the invitation of shalom for eternity that goes to us. In the end, the decision that we make, if we decide to receive that invitation, there's a new destiny and a new identity that awaits us. But God allows us to make that decision, and then there are consequences to that decision that he allows us to experience as well. And those consequences and that decision will last for eternity. We said earlier the most important statement of this whole passage is Jesus' statement that he's making all things new. Everything hangs on this statement. It's a promise. It's also a, a commentary on what is being explained here. But third, it's also an invitation. It's an invitation where Jesus says, I am making all things new, so come to me so that I can make you new as well. And so as we close this morning, we're going to be uh, singing a song called Beauty for Ashes. This song is about uh, the old things, the ashes, kind of passing away, so to speak, and God making something beautiful, something new, something different out of the ashes that we leave behind. And as we sing this song, really as we pray, I want you to think about this question. How has Jesus made you new? In what ways has he made you new? If things come to mind, thank him for that. And secondly, how do you want to ask Jesus to make you new today? 
For some of us, you may have thought to yourself, I've never really thought about it in those terms. I don't know if Jesus, if there's anything really that Jesus has done to make me new in my life. I would encourage you to talk with God about that. What does it mean for Jesus to make me new? Lord Jesus, give me understanding into what it means for you to make all things new in my life. And how is new different from what I know my life to be right now? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you for wisdom this morning. And we ask you for an understanding that you by your spirit would show us what these things mean. We're talking about things that we have not seen before and that we can just barely imagine what they might look like. We're thankful that you give us your word so that we can have some insight into this, Lord, that there can be some light shined on the things that we don't fully understand. We know that you don't leave us completely in the dark on these things, but you tell us what is important. And you tell us, most notably and most importantly, that Jesus, you came to make all things new. And we ask that you would show us this morning what that means for each one of us in this room. Lord, how have you made things new in our lives already, and how do you want to continue to make things new in us? And for those of us who have never come to that place of thinking about how is it that I need to be made new, Lord, I pray that you would show us. Would you give us insight and speak to each of us? I pray we'd be open to hearing what you have to say and how you have to direct our hearts. To show us what is old, what you want to remove, what you no longer want to be a part of our identity and our destiny, and what it is instead that you give us in place of that. That you would show us what it means to be our Savior and to be our King. Lord, that when we talk about the salvation of Jesus covering us like a bridal linen for eternity, Lord, that we would know that we need your righteousness. We need your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to that. And that the substance of our hope would guide us and encourage us even now. These are great pictures, Lord. We are so thankful uh, in anticipating what you are going to do in the end. We pray that you would fill our hearts with that anticipation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for being here. Great to see all of you. Of course, uh, today is again Palm Sunday, which begins uh, the most significant week in the calendar for us as Christians. We know it as Holy Week. It began the last week of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry leading up to the cross and to the resurrection that we will celebrate uh, next Sunday and Easter Sunday. And I encourage you to find a way to celebrate that as a special week for you this week. Uh, One of the things that I like to do is try to trace the steps of Jesus or the movements of Jesus each day, starting from today when he rides into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, going all the way through every day. You can actually find those things in Scripture. The Gospels tell us about the last day uh, or the last week of Jesus' life, day by day, leading up to the cross. 
Um, if you need some resources, you can find them like on the Bible app, for example. There are plenty of devotionals that will lead you through that week. Um, there are things you can find online if you're looking for a resource to lead yourself or your family through, the, uh, through this week. But it is an important week, and it will lead up, of course, to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. Good Friday, we are gathering uh, Friday night at 6 p.m. to have a Good Friday service. We want to invite you to join us for that. As Brent said earlier, there's child care provided for that service where we are going to um, think about and celebrate uh, Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for us and what that means. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus a week from today in this room during 9 o'clock and 1045. We want to encourage you to invite as many people as you can next Sunday to celebrate the hope that we have in Christ and his resurrection. Uh, we have uh, prayer partners. Uh, the Comstocks are our prayer partners for this service, and so they're, they're standing over there waiting for you to come pray with them. If there's anything that you need prayer for this week or prayer for right now in your life, they uh, will be happy to pray with you and talk with you about that. We also have prayer request cards that are located on the table as you leave here. You know the drill with those. You can fill them out, drop them in the offering stands, and we'll make sure that they uh, get to the right people to be praying for you over this coming week. So hope you all have a great Holy Week, and we look forward to seeing you either Friday night or Sunday, uh, next Easter Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.